Hello, I'm Victor Tabala and this is Expert Voice, Eagle Natural Health's podcast and your partner in natural health wellbeing. Joining us on the line today from Brisbane is Daniel Reutis, naturopath, nutritionist, and owner and principal laser therapist at Ultima Healthcare in Queensland. Daniel has over nine years of clinical experience, including experience with musculoskeletal therapy, which is a type of treatment to help with back pain, neck pain, joint pain, and muscular dysfunction. He is also the senior lecturer of nutritional medicine at Torrens University and the Australasian College of Natural Therapies. Furthermore, he is a published author and public speaker, regularly presenting to healthcare practitioners at seminars across Australia. And I'm pleased to welcome Daniel to today's podcast. Daniel, thank you very much for your time today and welcome to Expert Voice. Thank you very much for having me, Victor. Pleasure to be here. No problem. Now, today we're going to be talking about the importance of bone health and how you can best look after your bones from the time that you're a child right through to the twilight years of your life. And so we'll kick off with my first question in that bone health is something that many of us may not necessarily think about until we're older and may experience a fracture. So can you explain to us why looking after our bones should start from a young age? That's a really good question, Victor. I guess most of our traditional thought processes around osteoporosis is that it only affects us once we reach a certain age and we we get older and our bones start to become weak and brittle. But yeah, you're very right in in thinking that we do need to um, be mindful and conscious about our bones from a young age because the peak bone mineral density for men and women occurs between about 25 and 35 years of age and whatever our bone mineral density is at that point in time um, it will never be uh, greater than that so it will start to decrease decline as we age so we want to make sure that we're getting peak bone mineral density um, as high as we can get it by the age of sort of 25 to 35 but what we've also seen in some of the research is that by undertaking certain um, types of physical activity in adolescence, so in our teenage years, that can actually significantly increase uh, the amount of um, bone mineral density that we have. So what we found is that just by increasing your um, peak bone mineral density and bone mineral density in general in adolescence, if you increase that by about 10%, it'll delay the um, development of osteoporosis by about 13 years, which is quite significant. That's amazing, 13 years. I mean, that's a big chunk of anyone's life, really. So you also mentioned osteoporosis. And so this leads to my next question, which centers around two of the most common types of bone conditions, just like osteoporosis, but also osteopenia. So for the benefit of our broader audience, Could you tell us how are these conditions linked to increase bone fragility and risk of fractures? Absolutely. So I guess probably just preface what osteopenia and osteoporosis are to start with. So they're both very similar uh, in their etiology. It's just that osteopenia um, is, it's still defined as a low bone mineral density, but it's not as severe or as significant in the amount of loss that's occurred with the bone. So osteoporosis is a more advanced form of of bone loss. So you can think of osteopenia as the early stage and osteoporosis as the later stage uh, of that condition. And some people may never develop 
osteoporosis, even if they do have osteopenia. And certainly we know that um, both of those conditions can be reversed. So there are things that can be done to achieve that. With both osteopenia and osteoporosis, um, there's like a sponge-like material on the interior compartment of the bone, which is called the trabecular bone. And then there's like a hard compact outer layer of bone, which is called the cortical bone. And both of those parts of the bone will lose density. So there's a thinning of the cortex and reduced trabecular bone mass with osteopenia and osteoporosis. I also wanted to mention that osteoporosis is completely preventable and it's, um, it is treatable despite what uh, some people may understand with this condition. They think that once they've got it, they've got it for life. There is some good evidence to suggest that certain dietary therapies, lifestyle therapies, exercise, specific types of exercise can reverse it. Also, I wanted to preface that there's two different types of osteoporosis. So there's primary and secondary. So primary is basically an idiopathic condition. We're not actually sure what causes it. There's no underlying condition or disease or driving factor that's apparent for people with osteoporosis. Uh, and then there's secondary osteoporosis, which is defined as low bone mass, and there's microarchitectural changes in the bone mass as well in the presence of another disease or pathology. And it could also be that there's some type of um, medication that the person's taking, which could uh, cause secondary osteoporosis. So about 30% of women and 80% of men have secondary osteoporosis. Uh, primary osteoporosis is more seen in, in women and less in men, but it can affect both. So a lot of people can have osteoporosis for many, many years, and they don't even realize that they've got it until they've had a fall and they've fractured a bone. I'll go and get that investigated and that will be the sort of um, turning point as to getting a diagnosis and understanding they do have osteoporosis. Continuing on the, the bone mass side of things, so you did mention that um, there are, of course, there are other risks when bone mass is reduced, such as osteoporosis and, of course, bone fractures. Are there any other health risks? There are. So the research is showing that people who have osteoporosis, about 95% so almost everyone who has it has got at least one other comorbidity. So what they're suggesting, there could be some underlying process which has actually contributed to the cause of osteoporosis and that is also um, manifested in some other condition. The most common comorbidities which are seen in people with reduced bone mineral density is arthrosis and arthritis. So degeneration of a uh, joint or inflammation of a joint, chronic lower back pain, depression, and also chronic heart failure as well is quite closely associated with osteoporosis. Okay, so there's quite a, a number of um, other related conditions there and conditions that not necessarily we would relate to bone mass and bone density. So with that uh, being said, you have touched upon uh, lifestyle factors becoming, you know, being a very important part of bone health. It's widely known that these factors can have a positive impact on the health of our bones. So, Daniel, could you take us through a selection of these lifestyle factors and explain how such factors can benefit us in maintaining ideal bone health? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. 
probably the first one that comes to mind and is probably the least focused on is exercise. And there's specific types of exercise that have to be undertaken for there to be beneficial effects on improving bone mineral density as a main treatment or a cornerstone treatment for osteoporosis is that if we're able to strengthen the muscles and allow better support for the um, skeleton and expose the skeletal structure to certain um, stresses, we can actually increase the amount of um, bone deposition and the bone mineral density can reverse. Another thing is a person's um, BMI. So we know that there's a significant increase in risk fracture in people who have a BMI of less than 20. And if we're uh, identifying someone who's got a BMI of 17 or 18, we can certainly help them with dietary and lifestyle intervention to increase their BMI. It doesn't actually work the other way though. So an incremental increase above a BMI of 20 isn't associated with a protective effect. It's a very narrow range with that BMI where we're, we're having the most optimal effects. So anything between that sort of 20 to 25 would be ideal. In terms of nutrition, what are the key nutrients that contribute to healthy bones? And from a dietary perspective, what are the best food sources of such nutrients? When we're looking at maintaining bone health, there's some pretty standard nutrients that most people would think of for preventing and treating osteoporosis. So one of the main ones is calcium. And the one that works harmoniously with that is vitamin D. And then we've got some trace minerals. So things like boron, manganese is quite important. Potassium is very important. Magnesium and copper as well. So they all play a role in the production of bone and the maintenance of bone health. When we're looking at uh, certain foods, which we can consume to increase our levels of these foods. Obviously, dairy products have been proposed as a good way to get a lot of calcium in, the, in a person's diet. But there's lots of other foods that aren't necessarily coming from a dairy source, which are very high in calcium as well. And they're quite bioavailable levels of calcium. So nuts and seeds are quite high in calcium uh -huh. um, lots of fruit as well so oranges are very high in calcium as are green beans now i think that's a really important point to make because there is some research and it's not strong research but there is some to suggest that dairy intake in some individuals can be a pro cause pro-inflammatory reactions or responses in the body and a pro-inflammatory environment has been linked to increased bone resorption so for people who have an aversion to dairy they can look at those other other sources potassium is also another really important one so that's one of the major components of bone you can get potassium in avocado, bananas, potatoes, green leafy vegetables, fish. They're quite good sources. Copper is also very important. So copper is found in a lot of um, like herbs and spices, nuts and seeds and grains. Mushrooms have are a source of copper, and um, dried apricots are, are quite a good source as well. There's also lots of sort of accessory foods that you can eat, which actually have been shown to have direct inhibitory or stimulating effects on osteoclast and osteoblast activity. So what we're looking to do with osteoporosis 
is inhibit osteoclast activity and increase osteoblast activity. So we're actually getting more bone being built than is being resorbed. Blueberries, so they contain anthocyanidine, and that has been shown to inhibit osteoclast production. Nice. Um, as have plums. So they berries and plums have quite a similar effect on their inhibitory action on osteoclastogenesis. Green tea. So that's been shown to upregulate osteoclast cell death. Citrus fruits. So they contain um, limonoids and flavonoids. Onion contains quercetin and various organosulfur compounds. And they've all been shown to reduce levels of oxidative stress and decrease bone resorption. There's also things like alfalfa sprouts, which has been shown to decrease the secretion of a thing called cathepsin K, which is a compound released by osteoclasts in the reabsorption of bone. And it also increases levels of beta-glucuronidase, which can help increase osteoblast activity. So there's lots of other things there that we can have nutritionally, which aren't just providing the nutrients. They're actually having a direct effect on the um, activity of those cells. Some wonderful food options there, uh, Daniel, in regards, but particularly when it comes to uh, calcium, because as you mentioned, we're, we've all been led to believe that dairy products are the only source of calcium, but it's nice to know that you've got such wonderful options, such as your nuts and your seeds and your oranges that you mentioned before. It's fantastic. But as a nutritionist, you, of course, will be well aware that not everyone has the best diet. So it's an area that a large portion of our population struggles with on a daily basis. So if a person's diet isn't sufficient in providing the nutrients needed for good bone health, are there specific supplements that may help fill the gap? From a supplementary perspective, um, I guess everybody knows about the importance of calcium and, and vitamin D. Calcium and vitamin D must be given together. So what we know is that if you have insufficient levels of calcium or insufficient levels of vitamin D. If you just give one or the other, they actually don't have a very, well, there's an extremely negligible effect on increasing bone mineral density. You have to give calcium and vitamin D together. Now, one of the probably forgotten nutrients um, from a supplementary perspective is potassium. I think a lot of people are a bit scared of supplementing with that because of the potential effects it can have on the cardiovascular system. But when we actually look at the percentage increase in bone mineral density with potassium supplementation compared to calcium, potassium supplements as an average will increase your bone mineral density by about 8 to 11%. And calcium supplements generally will do that on less or increase your bone mineral density less than 2%. Wow, that's, that's a big difference. And who would have ever considered potassium in that regard? So it's, and the fact that it's got such a wonderful, a high percentage there when it comes to contributing to, um, to bone density. So it's yeah, wonderful information there about some of the most least likely nutrients that you would think of when it comes to uh, bone density. So um, thanks again for uh, sharing that with us, uh, Daniel. So potassium. So don't forget your potassium, everybody. <laughs> uh, so on that note, you did mention, of course, vitamin D and, of course, having a, a very important synergistic effect when it comes to calcium. So having that combination. It's, of course, known as the sunshine vitamin. 
So could you explain to us this aspect of being the sunshine vitamin and why safe sun exposure is so important for bone health? With vitamin D, the studies that have been done with supplementation, after about six to eight weeks of supplementation, if you stop supplementing and then retest your vitamin D levels a month later, a lot of the time your vitamin D levels fall below the baseline of where these people started with in a lot of these studies. So there's something happening with vitamin D supplementation where it's either not being absorbed properly or utilized properly in the body. What we do know is that the exposure to UVB light and its capacity to upregulate vitamin D concentrations, we actually don't lose that effect. So getting a a big bout of um, vitamin D from regular healthy sun exposure is probably more beneficial than taking a vitamin D supplement. So just as a a preface, when we're talking about vitamin D, we have pre-vitamin D, which is calciferol, and that's produced in our skin. That'll then go to the liver and get converted to calcidiol. And then that will then go to the kidney and be converted to calcitriol, which is our active form of vitamin D. So there are different forms of supplements that you can get, which contain either the 25-hydroxy-D or the 125-hydroxy, so the inactive and the active form. Uh, With sun, we don't really have to worry about specific types because the body's doing that conversion process itself. What we do need to be considerate of is making sure that people have got a normal healthy liver function and normal healthy kidney function to allow for conversion of that pre-vitamin D to the active form. When we're looking at the amount of sun exposure someone needs to increase their vitamin D concentrations or serum levels, it's about 15% of the body being exposed to the sun about three to four times a week for less than about 10 minutes outside of the hours of 10 to 3 p.m. And that's in Australia. It would differ in different countries at different latitudes. But that's the general recommendations in, in Australia. The sort of maximum production of vitamin D in the skin is limited to about 10,000 to 20,000 international units a day. And it caps out once our serum levels reach about 150 nanomoles. So there's a certain amount of vitamin D that we can get. It's very hard to overdose on it from the sun. And that would certainly be my recommendation for people if they are concerned about their vitamin D levels is to get it through sun exposure. And I think on that point there with sun exposure, the fact that you mentioned less than, you know, just less than 10 minutes of sun exposure for three or four times a week. So in your opinion, Daniel, what are the optimal vitamin D levels and what is the best way to find out what our vitamin D levels are? That's a very complicated question to answer. In the research that I could find, basically 50 nanomoles was coming up quite regularly as the minimal amount of serum vitamin D required to maintain health. So that's the very minimum is 50 nanomoles per litre. The upper level or optimal level is between 125 and 150 nanomoles per litre of serum vitamin D. Uh, And once we are able to achieve levels of um, 125 nanomoles per litre, it seems that 
calcium supplementation actually works a lot better. Any calcium supplementation in an individual who has a serum vitamin D level of less than 50, the calcium supplementation has actually been shown to have a very negligible effect. So what we need to do is ensure that we're getting people's vitamin D levels up before we start supplementing with calcium. It's really, really important. With vitamin D supplementation, what we can do is actually work out how much someone needs per day to increase their levels. So for every 2.5 nanomoles, we want to increase someone's vitamin D level. We give them 100 international units of vitamin D. So if we wanted to increase it by 25 nanomoles, say they were at 25 nanomoles baseline, we wanted to get it to 50, then it would equate to about 1,000 international units of vitamin D. And that needs to be given for a minimum of 12 to 20 weeks to achieve a substantial increase in the plasma concentration of vitamin D and to maintain that level. So that's the sort of minimum amount. Um, the recommended doses are about 600 to 1,000 international units a day for children, 1,500 to 5,000 for adults, and 4,500 to 6,000 for overweight and obese people and yeah it needs to be given for approximately 12 to 20 weeks uh, minimum duration fantastic and that's good to know the uh, the levels because it is quite a confusing it can be a confusing area in terms of how much should we be giving whether you're a child or an adult um, but more importantly when you're getting your bloods taken and measured for vitamin d it's important to know those baseline levels so i'm glad that you clarified that baseline level of uh, 50 as being the minimum uh, requirement. But more importantly, you mentioned before about the supplementation of calcium in some cases. And, you know, not every calcium supplement out there has vitamin D with it. So, you know, again, this could be something worthwhile investigating if someone's taking a calcium and yet their bone density levels or their bone density isn't improving. Could it be because their vitamin D levels are low to begin with? So you've got your capsules, you've also got... Uh, special vitamin D sprays that are available now as well. So we do have a lot of options there for people uh, depending on um, how they wish to uh, take in uh, vitamin D. So moving along now to another area when it comes to bone health, it's the area of menopause, obviously in this case for women. And we know that menopause is a time in a woman's life where she needs to be particularly mindful of bone health. So why is this? Yeah, estrogen is the regulating hormone for osteoblast and osteoclast differentiation, production, and activity. So when we have sufficient estrogen levels, it's able to regulate bone mineral density in a number of ways. So as I mentioned, it can sort of help with the differentiation, production, and function of osteoblasts and osteoclasts. And when we have normal levels of, of estrogen, we produce a healthy amount of osteoblasts and a healthy amount of osteoclasts. So it's regulated. When we lose a certain amount of estrogen production, we get a significant increase in both osteoblasts and osteoclast production, but we actually lose a lot of osteoblastic activity and osteoclastic activity increases and we get bone reabsorption happening. Estrogen also has an effect on reducing certain receptor or the activation of certain receptors 
on uh, osteoblasts and osteoclasts. So there's sort of aberrant function there where the osteoclasts go uh, out of control and the osteoblasts aren't getting the signals that they need to have a normal function. Estrogen also regulates the mechanoreceptors in osteocytes. So they're sort of dormant osteoblasts which are incorporated into bone and they can sense the um, density of bone. So when it becomes uh, reduced, there's certain chemicals that are released by osteocytes to promote bone reabsorption and new bone deposition happening. And when we don't have enough estrogen, then that osteocyte activity is, is lost. So the bones will basically just sit there, not remodel, and we'll be getting lots of minerals being pulled out of the bone for other reasons, and it will just continue to make the osteoporosis worse. Okay, so that's good to know for our women out there who are going through the change of life, uh, menopause, to be very mindful of the fact that this could be an area of health, bone health, that could become an issue uh, during that time. But of course, we just can't forget about the women. What about the men? Do changing hormone levels affect bone health in men as well? So we know with women approaching menopause that their estrogen production will decline and that will lead to a reduction in bone mineral density. But the same is also to be said for males as well. So what we've actually seen is that estrogen plays a very important role in the regulation of osteoblast and osteoclast function. And in men, that function can be lost or it can be impaired as androgens or androgen concentrations actually fall. You might be thinking, well, why do androgens have any impact on the amount of, of estrogen that's actually being produced in the body? And it's because the androgens are a direct precursor to estrogen. Androgens are aromatized into estrogen. So as we lose androgen production, as men age, they will then also have a lowered amount of estrogen production. So that can certainly be a major factor uh, to consider for men. So rather than actually trying to directly increase estrogen in males, we can look at increasing androgens and that will then be aromatized into estrogen. So you mentioned androgens in men and the importance of androgen levels. So what are some of the best ways to improve androgen levels in men? There's a couple of different nutrients and herbs that can be used. So we know that high dose zinc can inhibit what's an aromatase inhibitor. So if we're not cautious with the amount of zinc that we're giving to patients, then that can certainly uh, have a negative impact on the production of estrogen across to androgen. So we typically think of zinc as something that we want to give to men to increase their libido and, and their testosterone production. Once we start approaching um, around about 100 milligrams per day, there can be some inhibitory effects on that um, aromatase enzyme. So we're not getting estrogen being produced. We must be careful with that. In regards to herbs, what we can look at is things like saw palmetto. So that will actually uh, reduce the conversion of the um, testosterone, sorry, yeah. into um, active testosterone. So there's more in the pool for it to be converted across to estrogen. So that's uh, certainly a useful herb that, that could be used in that situation. 
And coming back to exercise as well, that's really, really important. So for men and probably women as well, um, doing some sort of weight-bearing exercise that's going to engage a lot of the um, larger muscle groups, particularly the muscles in the legs, that's going to increase um, growth factors and testosterone production as well. We're going to get increased androgen production. So that can uh, have a flow-on effect to regulating estrogen production. So it all goes back to that notion, that diet lifestyle that we've spoken about before, exercise, for example, just bringing those factors back in to a, a general, uh, the general lifestyle that you have. I think that's going to be um, important, not just for men, of course, but for women too. So um, very important that has been laid out once again for, um, for everyone out there. So my final question today is about the bone density test. So a couple of areas there, or a couple of questions. So the bone density test, what does it involve and what can it tell us and the best age to have it done? The way in which we assess bone mineral density is through a scan called the DEXA scan, which stands for a dual X-ray absorbotometry scan. These devices are relatively expensive and they're usually quite big. Um, so they're in limited clinics in medical facilities. There are some mobile vans that will actually come around. I know of some in Queensland that will actually go out to gyms and people can have a DEXA scan done there. But for the most part, it will be done um, at a medical facility and it will probably be one of the larger um, facilities. Not everyone's going to have a, a DEXA scan um, in, in every single GP clinic. When we're doing this particular scan, basically what they're doing is looking at the density in the femoral neck of the, the main bone in, in the leg, the femur. And the information that's provided from the DEXA scan is given in either a T-score or a Z-score. So a T-score refers to the comparison of the person's bones being assessed to that of a healthy 30-year-old of the same sex. And the Z-score is a comparison of a person's bone density to that of a person of the same age and sex that has relatively good um, bone mineral density. So the one that's typically used for the diagnosis of osteoporosis is the T-score. So anything less than one standard deviation away from the mean is considered normal. Anything up to 2.5 standard deviations away from the mean is considered osteopenia and anything greater than 2.5 is considered osteoporosis. With osteoporosis, there's a lot of people who have this condition who aren't diagnosed. So what the recommendations in the literature are is that if you're approaching menopause and if you've had early menopause, then it's probably a good idea to get a DEXA scan done. Now that's going to affect women at all different ages. There's women in their thirties who go into perimenopause and they should then be looking at getting a DEXA scan done to assess what their peak bone mineral density is and if they're at risk of developing osteoporosis. But generally uh, around that age of uh, 50 would be sufficient for a DEXA scan. If it was myself, I'd probably be going in earlier. I'd want to catch it before it actually becomes a, a, an issue. 
I was also going to mention that there's another tool which is used in a lot of clinics, uh, which is called FRAX, F-R-A-X, and that's the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool. So this can actually give a patient an indication of what their fracture risk is independently of whether or not they've got their DEXA scan T-score back or not. So this is something that can be done quite easily in clinicians' consultation rooms. So it's a thing that can be done online. And it just requires some relatively standard information from a client. It's good to know that there are options available when it comes to bone density testing, such as the DEXA scan. So I'm glad, uh, Daniel, today that you've been able to take us through an option like that, that basically highlights what it does in terms of how it measures for um, our bone mineral density and that it is something that our clients, our customers and our patients can uh, utilise to be able to get the results that they need when it comes to bone health. And look, there are so many factors that we've been discussing today in maintaining healthy bones from diet to exercise, as well as environmental factors. And from listening to Daniel's words of wisdom today, we now know that healthy bones is not just an area of health that should only be of concern as we get older. From children right through to our elderly population, we can all benefit from this advice in helping to maintain strong bones and avoiding health concerns such as osteoporosis and bone fractures in the future. So Daniel, once again, thank you so much for taking us through this very important topic of bone health. You're welcome, Victor. Thank you very much for having me on. And we encourage you to consult with your healthcare practitioner for advice on whether supplements are suitable for you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, we'd appreciate you jumping onto iTunes to provide us with a rating and a review. If you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us via the Eagle Natural Health website, which is www.eaglenaturalhealth.com.au in the Contact Us section. I'm Victor Tabala. Thanks for listening.